Kaylee, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and what got you into the good fight of fighting financial crime? Sure. Well, um, a little bit about myself. Um, I feel like I wear a couple of hats. So sometimes I'm an accounting professor. Sometimes I'm a documentary filmmaker. Um, I've been a radio show host. Um, now I'm a book author. So, but they are, all of these things um, are brought together by one common topic, and that is around fraud, white collar crime, and forensic accounting. And so I find myself fascinated by the three main aspects of when fraud happens. That can either be the perpetrators, the victims, or the whistleblowers. And um, there's something that we talk a lot about in the literature, which is called the fraud triangle. But there's something also called the whistleblower triangle. And ironically, they're the same thing. And so I've been fascinated by how these three um, components come together. That is rationalization, pressure, and opportunity. And so you can think about, about that from the perspective of perpetrators and of whistleblowers. So I remember long ago, I was in high school and I had a neighbor who went away um, to prison, federal prison, for an embezzlement uh, case that he executed at his bank. And when you're younger and adults start acting badly, you, you don't forget that. You're sort of like, hmm, why would this person do this? And so I was a senior in high school, and that was really what started my fascination. Some may call it nosiness. Others may call it fascination with how people can rationalize bad behavior. And if you really think about it, so many of us can rationalize bad behavior. And it's not this, this idea that there's this, or there's only career criminals. I want you to forget that idea. I want us to think about the everyday person that can find themselves rationalizing the decision. I'm an accounting professor by training. So I have a undergraduate degree in accounting. I have a master's in accounting. I have a PhD in accounting and I'm a certified public accountant. So one would say that I love accounting and I do. And, um, but there's this idea of what happens when numbers are either manipulated or reported wrongly. And that's really what fascinates me about forensic accounting and fraud. So that's just a little bit of background about where I come from. I think one of the things that I'm super interested in is this whole classification you do around different types of perpetrators. Okay, I've been fortunate enough to read your book, and I know you kind of classify them all kind of kind of differently. So, can you maybe expand a little bit more around how you look to classify different kinds of perpetrators um, when it comes to, I guess, kind of embezzlement fraud and, and, and white collar crime? The inspiration, really, of thinking about these different categories of perpetrators really started in the classroom. So I teach a graduate level forensic accounting class at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois. And what we do in that class, in addition to talking about various fraud schemes, is we have perpetrators or offenders come and share their stories. Offenders, whistleblowers, and victims. We're just talking about offenders or perpetrators right now. And so what I realized as I observed my graduate students over the years is how they had these different reactions based on the type of case we were talking about. And that really is what led me to think that all perpetrators are not created equal. Everyone does not steal for greed. And if you're listening to any true crime podcast or if you've ever watched 
a documentary or a Netflix and you and you find yourself just enthralled with with crime or true crime, it's probably the story of an intentional perpetrator. And that is a person that uses their organization, knows the weaknesses in their organization and uses it and exploits those weaknesses for personal gain. A lot of us don't identify with an intentional perpetrator. Most of us, many of us would feel like I would never steal from my employer. I would never manipulate the system for personal gain. A lot of us feel that way. So what I wanted to do is really open up this conversation of how could we see ourselves in this perpetrator category. And so I thought about it and thought about the people that come to class and share their stories and the reactions that the students have had. And the light bulb went off in my head that there are two types, there's these other two types of uh, uh, perpetrators, and that is an accidental perpetrator and a righteous perpetrator. An accidental perpetrator is really somebody that just stumbles upon and finds themselves dropped into like a fraudulent situation. They tend to be people pleasers, team players. You know, you never push back. Your boss, your supervisor asks you to do something. You might feel like this feels a little odd, but I'm going to do it anyway because I trust the process. I trust the system. I trust who I report to. And not pushing back and asking those questions might find, you might find yourself mixed up in a fraudulent situation. And so when those offenders come to class and share their stories, I can see the empathy that my graduate students have. They, they can see themselves faced with those similar dilemmas. Now, a righteous perpetrator is a person that has power and privilege within an organization. They tend to be the stars. You know, whether they're the, the star employee, the star salesperson, they are the ones where they can get around the rules. And if they, and, and people don't ask them much because you don't want to aggravate or upset the star. And so sometimes a star, because they can bend the rules, will bend those rules to help someone else. So they will use organizational resources to help somebody outside of their organization. And so they don't often receive any personal gain, not directly, because they're trying to help someone else. So those are the three categories. And really the goal was to be able to open up this fraud, this perpetrator category so that we can see ourselves perhaps in one of these, in one of these categories. So this idea that perpetrators are them, never us, is the conversation that I really wanted to change. I wanted all of us to see, hey, maybe there are times and instances where I do rationalize something that I want. I'm going to bend this rule here that could land you into a, a pretty large fraudulent situation. Is there kind of a, a difference in maybe the size of the fraud that these different types of categories of perpetrators commit? So for example, are we seeing that maybe intentional perpetrators say commit millions upon millions upon millions of dollars or pounds worth of fraud where maybe an accidental perpetrator may only commit say a, a couple of thousand dollars? Uh, do, do, do we see any kind of difference in that kind of size? Uh, that's a really interesting question and never been asked that. So uh, my answer is no, because theft is very personal. And think about if you are a business owner and you found out someone stole $5 from you. And it's not so much the amount as it is the process. How did they do it? Why did they do it? 
So I don't really think about the categories based on a uh, dollar value or a pound value because it's more about the the rationalization as to why they're doing it or how they do it as opposed to the dollar amount. I think if I look at some of the work that you've done today, so if I look at the documentary um, that, that, that you did on Rita Crondwell, like where would you see Rita in this kind of perpetrator landscape? Which kind of category would you put her into? Rita Crunwell is an intentional perpetrator. And um, in my book, that story of her fraud really runs throughout the entire book because um, All the Queen's Horses was a documentary that I directed and produced in 2017. And um, it's really the through story, the inspiration of Fool Me Once because Rita Crunwell is an intentional perpetrator. The residents of Dixon, Illinois, are innocent bystanders. The town of Dixon, Illinois is an organizational target. And the person that discovered the fraud is a woman by the name of Kathy Swanson. She is an accidental whistleblower. So as I was thinking about not only the classroom journey that I've had educating students for all these years, I really looked at my documentary and had it took a step back to think about what did I learn from this that can advance a, a new conversation about fraud, about um, whistleblowers, about victims, and about perpetrators. And so um, All the Queen's Horses really is that story that's throughout. So Rita Cronwell, she was the city comptroller for a very small town called Dixon, Illinois. And Dixon is located about three hours west of downtown Chicago, Illinois. And Rita Cronwell stole conservative amount, $53.7 million over a 20-year period without anyone noticing. And so she knew the weaknesses within the town, within their, their organizational structure, and she utilized those weaknesses for direct personal gain. And the way she was able to steal $53.7 million was so simple. This wasn't this mastermind kind of complex scam. All she did was set up a secret account, move money from one account, from a legitimate account to this secret account, and then just went shopping, bought horses, bought real estate, bought furs, traveled the world right under the noses of everybody. So it was a very simplistic scheme, but she is definitely an intentional perpetrator. That is some serious money. Like, what did she spend it on? How did you spend $53.7 million? Well, Rita Cranwell spent her money on horses. She was one of the number one quarter horse breeders, um, hence the name of the documentary, All the Queen's Horses. Um, so she, um, she owned over 400 quarter horses. And so quarter horses are the, they're like the, uh, the bodybuilders of horses. So they're, they're real bulky. The whole idea is to bulk them up and then take a quarter mile around the track. And um, she won 52 world championships showing these quarter horses. And so it's an expensive hobby. I mean, it, it requires a lot of money. So that's where her money uh, went. There's a, a colleague of mine that I used to work with. And one of the jokes he always made is, you know, the money would go into the horse through through horse feed and out through the other end when they went to the bathroom. And so that's really what happened to her money. But horses are expensive. And that's where she spent the majority of her money. Now, she had homes, she had um, cars, she had jewelry. 
but the the bulk of the money was on horses. Literally, she just took that money from the people of Illinois or Dixon, Illinois, sorry, and then just moved it into a separate account. There was no concept of trying to move it via multiple different chains, like we hear cr- criminal gangs, etc. Do today. It was just a really simple process. Absolutely, and I, and there are some more um, complicated and complex fraud schemes, but a lot of them are very very simple. Some of the most um, detrimental are very, very simple. So, you know, when you think about the question that you asked me earlier about um, the dollar amount, does the dollar amount have anything to do with the the categories, the perpetrator categories? I think um, seniority in an organization probably has more to do with it. What I really wanted to do and what I try to do with my messaging is to remind people that all of us, can fall victim to being a perpetrator. All of us can be victimized at any time too, but how? And sometimes there there are these really simple schemes. Take for example, what we noticed during the pandemic. So at least in the United States, um, the US government tried um, to offer PPP loans. And what was really interesting about the PPP loan process is the government had wonderful intentions to put money in the hands of companies, of business owners, because the world shut down. But what happened is in efforts to get more money in the hands of entrepreneurs, businesses, the rules were relaxed because typically there may be, I'm just gonna make this number up, let's say there's five steps you have to go through. And so we're gonna relax all those steps so we can get money in the hands of people now so their businesses won't suffer, so their families won't go hungry, so they can pay rent. I mean, you name it, there's a reason why we needed to get the money out fast. And so because those rules were relaxed, people started noticing it. And so what I found fascinating about the types of schemes that I saw, especially during the pandemic, were who was committing it. So you had a lot of first-time offenders, entrepreneurs, doctors, nurses, chiropractors, pharmacists, people that you would never think would ever try to defraud anybody were out here saying, I have 40 employees when I only have four because the number, the amount of money that you would re- would receive had a large part to do with how many employees you had. So there were these ways that you could just sort of fudge the truth. And so you saw some people that might've been law-abiding citizens that now became an intentional perpetrator. This wasn't an accident. It's not an accident that you got the your employee count wrong. You know how many employees you you have on your on your team. You mentioned a little bit more kind of around your book, and we talked about obviously the perpetrator piece, but there's also a piece around kind of t- uh, targeted organizations. So how how do you, how do perpetrators target organizations? Like like how can we categorize that? Sure. Uh, So what's interesting about organizations, and I I say this um, often, is when actions are predictable, organizations become targets. And so you think about banks, or you even think about the government, you know, but a lot of times we can predict how a bank receives money, when a bank receives money. We know the process inside and out. I was um, a subject matter expert on this uh, show called Super Heist. It was the CNBC show. And uh, what they did is Super Heist um, chronicled these major bank heists, these historical bank heists. And what was interesting is you did have these organized um, crime groups 
that would spend a year, 18 months, plotting out how they're going to steal or hold up a bank. And what was interesting is just how much information that they, they knew, like they knew when the armored truck would come. They knew when the deposits were made. They knew when the tellers came. They knew when the cleaning staff came. They knew when they left. They knew when there was no one in the building. They had the blueprints of the building. So it's, it's interesting when so much information about organizations are available, you can become a target. You think about money uh, transfer services, like a Western Union. A lot of times we know the steps on how to make a transfer. And so knowing those steps means that you can also study the weaknesses in those steps. But if you think about, there's some organizations that we don't know much about. Like I, I think about, at least in the United States, I think about the White House. And there's so much mystery around the White House. That mystery is really an internal control because it's not predictable. You don't know the movements of the president. You don't know the movements of the first family. And that's really in a way to keep them safe. So organizations become actually targets when all of their movements and all of their actions are known by many. Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. I think we talked about whistleblowers and you talked about, I think, and I, I, I can't remember the name now, the person that blew the whistle on, on the Rita Cromer story. So, so why don't you talk to us a little bit about whistleblowers? Because again, I think you kind of have some really good ways of being able to kind of categorize different types of, 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 of whistleblowers. So maybe, the, maybe you can look to explain that to us. Well, let's face it here. Um, we don't like whistleblowers. And I mean, we just really all need to just close our eyes and be honest with ourselves. We do not like the person that tells. Even if what they're saying is true, and even if it has extreme, it's, it's helpful, we don't trust them. We don't trust them. And the question is, why don't we? Why don't we? And there's valuable information that whistleblowers offer. And so just as I wanted to do with the perpetrator category, I wanted to break down the whistleblower category as well. And so there's three types of whistleblowers you could be. You can either be an accidental whistleblower, a noble whistleblower, or a vigilante whistleblower. Now, most of the hate and the the anger that comes around being a whistleblower, you know, you think about the common terms that we hear, a snake, a traitor, a tattletale. Um, those tend to be vigilante whistleblowers. That's who we're talking about, the person that's going to tell. And so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and go to the other two categories because what I want people to realize is everyone is not a disgruntled employee, someone that's just waiting the sidelines for someone to mess up like some vigilantes do. Some people are just doing their job, head down, but they notice something that seems off. They're scared at first, but then they report it. That's an accidental whistleblower, and that's who Kathy Swanson was from my documentary, All the Queen's Horses. Now this other category, the noble whistleblower, they are similar to a vigilante, except they are part of a team or part of a group and everybody on the group is doing something questionable or unethical. And this one person steps outside of the group and says, no, I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna report it. Now the reason why there's a difference between a noble whistleblower and a vigilante whistleblower is because the noble is part of the group. They're part of whatever um, is going on. So say, for instance, you are part of a, a safety engineering team and you notice that your colleagues are not following protocol and you step out and say something. The vigilante whistleblower, on the other hand, 
may not be a part of the group. They may just be an observer and they tell. So say for instance, I'm driving in my car and I noticed that someone, um, someone um, went through a stop sign and I decide they broke the law. I'm going to write down their driver's license and then I'm going to call the police, call the local police station and give them my report of what I just saw. This person was going 10 miles over the speed limit. They ran a red light or they ran a stop sign and here is their license plate. I suggest that you follow up. That's what a vigilante does. Now, is the vigilante wrong? Not really. They're trying to protect others, but they just sometimes feel like they're taking it a step further, right? Just a step too far. So what would be your one piece of advice to maybe organizations or banks or financial institutions who may be listening to this podcast around how they should maybe look to treat whistleblowers, say, within their own organizations? So um, the answer to that, uh, I think, um, is doing a culture check. It's safer for people to stay quiet. It really is personally. You know, someone coming forward really only benefits the organization because the personal attacks that the person is going to receive by coming forward are huge. So you really want to make sure that you have created an environment where people would report. Now, a lot of organizations say, you know, we have an anonymous hotline, you know, report anonymously. But realistically, if you if if the claim is serious enough, the likelihood of that person re remaining anonymous is probably going to be hard. So there, there has to be a culture of embracing and celebrating when people are coming forward with information. Research by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners tells us that 40% of frauds are discovered by whistleblowers, not by external audits, not by internal audits, not by technology, but by people. So you want to make sure that you are creating an environment where people feel safe enough to come forward and tell you something. So maybe as as a society, um, we need to change our perception around kind of whistleblowing policies or, or how we should use that kind of data or, or, or encourage encourage whistleblowing, right? We should encourage reporting because what reporting might do is show a pattern so maybe this scheme has um, impacted other other towns other businesses and you start building a story rarely are crimes isolated if someone has a scheme and it's good enough they're doing it over and over and over again so even if it's a small scheme let's say it's twenty thousand dollars they've probably pulled this multiple times so the fact that you might report it and it's it's publicized may cause other people to report and so i think that it's important if you really think about it the power of our voices is really key. And, and and I think that's a really fair point, actually, too. So I think if I look back at kind of some of the the more kind of textbook fraud training that I've done kind of throughout my career and stuff like that, it's like nobody ever starts with a $10 million fraud, right? It generally starts from like a $5 expense claim or, 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 or something like that. Sure. You know, even the case that we're talking about with the Rita Cromwell case, that started at around $20,000. You know, so in, in and out, 20 is large, but still it's not, it's not 53.7 million. It started small. And so I think what you, what you see is people test the system with small amounts. And when they see that there are no controls or there's no reporting or there's no one looking, you keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. The same control weakness at $5 
is the same control weakness at $5 million. And saying something is also the employee that notices the weakness, not to say that they're using the weakness to employ, exploit for personal gain, but they notice the weakness because if they speak up, they're stopping somebody else that could be using that weakness to exploit for their personal gain. Hence why companies, I guess, hire people like ethical hackers, right? To try and understand where the holes in the processes are. Yes. Um, I have a friend of mine, Rachel Toback, um, who runs a company called Social Proof and uh, Social Proof Security. And she is an ethical hacker. And she has some really great videos of where she is... Um, hacking someone on CNN, um, hacking a voting a voting system. I mean, she's she's a great ethical hacker, but I think her skill set is so needed because she will show organizations their weaknesses. And sometimes we don't think we have any, but we actually do. Do you see kind of any correlation in any of the work that you've done or any of the conversations that you've had around kind of whistleblowers, mule activity, that kind of area? Yeah, you know, the, the money mule in individuals, I think, is a very um, complicated behavioral kind of situation because you almost have two camps. You have people that know that they're that they're the mule and then some people that don't. And so the people that know that they're a money mule, I will put them more in an intentional perpetrator category. So I'm going to put that aside for a second. I want to talk about the people that don't necessarily know that they are being targeted or being victimized. The elderly, students, you know, there's been research that shows that around uh, 23% of people that are um, that are unaware that they're money mules are under the age of 21. And then that, that uh, statistic pumps up, jumps up significantly to around 64% when we're talking about people up to the age of 30. I think where the whistleblower role can um, be helpful is if you have a friend that you notice all of a sudden they have all this money and they didn't have it before, ask them where they're coming, where they're getting it from, because they could be involved in an illegal operation and not even aware of it. And that could have a significant impact on their life. It could impact, it could impact their ability to get a job, their ability to secure credit later in their future. There is no job that you should ever get that is asking you to open up a bank account to funnel money, we're gonna give you a fee for that and it has no job description. Those are so many red flags that I just described. And if you see it, you should report it. So you, we have to sort of have this um, societal whistleblowing intention in mind when we see these kinds of activities because they're all around. Now, those intentional perpetrators who know they're involved or getting involved, in an um, illegal transfer of money, there's not much we can do to, to, to save them because they know what they're doing. But just do be mindful of the detrimental impact that it can have personally on your life because it will have one. A, a money muling scheme that we don't always think about as money muling schemes are the romance scams. And you think about you have a person that's posing online as a suitor as a someone that is interested in you and you forge this relationship with this person, you think they love you, you love them, you start sending them money. Money mule situations can also look like that too. I had a friend of mine, um, she told me my mother had just fought, fallen victim to a romance scam 
And it sounded, as she talked about it, it sounded more of like a money mulling situation. And she lost everything. This woman had been working for 50 plus years, lost her house, lost her savings, lost her retirement, lost everything, everything in this um, situation where she transferred all of her assets, all of her money in this relationship that she forged online with the person. She met a man that she thought was interested in her and they just talked and talked and talked and he gave every excuse why they could not be in person. I think he had some illness, but it was a reason why he couldn't travel and why she couldn't travel to him. So they just talked and talked. And so he needed money for treatment. He needed money for rent. He needed money for this and that. And she sent it to them after trust was established. And once trust was established, it was easy to take everything he needed from her. And these are big sums. So this is $20,000, $30,000 transfers. These are, this is not, I'm not talking about like 10 or $15, but this is large amounts of money. And who knows where he sent that money to, but I believe that she was mixed up in a ring and that's what took her, her whole livelihood. And now she lives with her daughter and she doesn't have a house. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have any security that she once had. And she had it for years. Wow. Wow. Where do you think like the ultimate point is where say law enforcement or um, other kind of authorities will look to step in to take um, say a whistleblower's report kind of seriously, right? So we're not talking maybe $10 off the top here and there and, and that kind of thing. So here is where I think we have an issue because there's a gap between what happens to the average person or even small business or even medium-sized business and how your report gets taken seriously on the law enforcement side. And so I think your losses have to be big enough to get attention. And that's where I think we have um, a disconnect and a gap because there are tons of people, tons of organizations that get victimized on a daily basis but they, the losses may not be large enough to say um, to, to reach a, a federal investigation unless it's scale. So it has to be much, much larger than just you or a few businesses. So I think that there is this disconnect. And that's where I think people remain. They, they remain into this, in this victim purgatory, if you will, because if you if a, if a perpetrator knows that, $200,000 loss is not big enough to alert major authorities. As long as I'm beneath that, I can keep doing this because these victims have nowhere to go. And I learned this lesson from uh, Brett Johnson. And Brett Johnson is a, a, a reformed cyber criminal. His, uh, his story is in the book and he comes and visits my class. And I learned this lesson from him. And he was saying that when people are involved in an illegal action or an illegal transaction, assuming that they know. So I'm assuming that the person knows. The one thing that they won't do is report you when they are victimized because they already know that they're involved in an illegal situation. So he was like, it made it easy for him when he was involved in cybercrime to keep scamming people in um, on the dark web or in this cybercrime way because they knew that they were trying to do, they were doing something fraudulent in the first place. The last thing they're going to do is report it. 
And so I think um, I remember when he said that, I was like, yeah, you know, that does make a lot of sense. But I think there's this this victim purgatory where people don't know where to turn. There are no resources to help them because their cases aren't large enough. And so they just keep getting hit over and over again. And that that's that's where I think the role of um, fraud investigators really can come in handy because we have to give voice to those individuals and those businesses that may have losses that are not large enough to alert um, authorities, but, but we still have to help them. What I believe is, is of concern is virtual currency, you know, where you have this unregulated market. It's like a breeding ground for, for ways to transfer money, illegal, illicit money. And, and that, that's really scary. And I have a colleague of mine at Paul, and his name is Lamont Black and Lamont and I are forever, forever, I'm debating about the legitimacy of uh, cryptocurrency and coins. And I, and I always say to him, like, what about the, the money laundering aspects of not being able to regulate the transfer of money? That's really scary. So we always have these debates all the time. I think what we're seeing in the auditing space and what we're talking about in the accounting profession is how do we audit, how do we regulate, how do we notice the red flags around those types of transactions? Because that's not something we currently teach future auditors um, on how to handle. We only are teaching them how, how to look for anomalies, um, use financial metrics when it ends up in a financial statement. But understanding how money moves on the blockchain and how um, money transfers using cryptocurrency is a whole new field that um, I hope three years from now, we're at a very different place. A, a good friend of mine always jokes that crypto is basically just one big Ponzi scheme. So I, th I think obviously going through that scenario, it, it, it kind of all makes sense. So, so look, going back to the book, and I think one of the things that, that caught my attention and my ears pricked up right towards the end and on the theme of crypto, I think you, you mentioned about going in and doing some investigative work around a potential um, crypto investments. It was either cryptocurrency, I think it was actually, rather than investment scheme. Are you able to share any exciting details on that? So the colleague I was talking about, um, Lamont Black, uh, we actually are in a movie, a documentary that is called The Highest of Stakes. And um, so my job in this documentary or docudrama is to really question is this coin, it's called Hex, is the Hex coin a scam or not? Is it legitimate? And so, you know, Lamont and I are going sort of doing this uh, investigation where we're talking to different people. And we actually flew out to the south of Spain to uh, interview this founder of this coin. Now, I am of the belief that anything that requires growth by recruiting people and there's no tangible product underneath it, sort of feels like a Ponzi scheme to me, right? At best, it's multi-level marketing, but at worst, it's a Ponzi scheme. So that's sort of my always my um, my default reaction when I when I hear about um, cryptocurrency. But probably when something is too hard to explain, my 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 the red flag starts just waving in my face because you should be able to explain to me what, why, and how crypto is in about five sentences. And when you have to start showing me a bunch of algorithms and mathematical models to explain 
how the money moves and this and that, I start getting real skeptical. So so jumping back to the, I guess, the forensic um, accounting kind of theme, like if you were looking at, say, like financial statements for irregularities or things that just didn't quite look right, what type of red flags are you looking for? It depends on the nature of the business, but things like um, there are some things that move together. So if you're, if you're claiming that your sales are going up, then your inventory should be going down. It shouldn't stay flat. So there are things, there are certain accounts that sort of move together. Um, and so when we talk about accounting, um, forensic accounting at its basis is understanding just general accounting principles. And so we, um, if you take an accounting class, the first thing you're going to do, probably second day, is talk about the accounting equation, which is assets equals liabilities plus stockholders equity. And so, and that stockholders equity piece of that equation is really where we um, bring in the impacts of the income statement. I say all that to say that all of your four basic financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, the statement of um, stockholders equity and statement of cash flows, your basic financial statements, all of those talk and have to balance. So if you lie about something, if you pull a number out, something is going to be not balanced. And so understanding financial ratios really helps you understand the anomalies. That's why I always say everyone should take a basic accounting class because it'll help you ask really smart questions about the financial statements of any organization. I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm going to book into uh, my the, the next uh, next available accounting class. But yeah, but look, I, I think be working, I guess, more traditionally in payments and I guess kind of um, fraud and financial crime from a from a merchant or a commerce perspective. I guess there's a lot of correlations then to things like transaction laundering when we're talking about kind of like these um, forensic accounting principles that you just mentioned, right? So I guess these would potentially be a good way to identify potential things like transaction laundering. I see transaction laundering and how that happens similar to, I guess, mule activity too, right? Well, and what's tough about... Um mule activity is it's disguised. So a lot of times things don't roll into the financial statement. So if you are taking money out before it ever entered the recording process of how we record a transaction, that makes it tough. So that's why you do have to understand how accounts move together and what management is saying about things. So for example, um, if you are selling a lot of goods, um, let's say you increased your sales by 50% and, but in another breath, you said that your warehouses are, are decreasing. You don't have the capacity any longer, like square footage. If you're selling a lot, you should be growing there. So there's, there's these financial and non-financial measures that you should be able to look at that makes sense. But the tough thing is when transactions stay outside of the normal accounting cycle. And I think that that's where the money mule activity becomes difficult because you are using a proxy, a person, a bank account, somebody that has, that may look legitimate on the outside, that has a legitimate um, bank account, but is receiving money from an outside entity and you don't know how or why. And so the question is, are these financial institutions asking how the money comes in? And so 
those are questions that are a little bit outside of accounting, but you would think that any good bank or any good financial institution is doing a random audit of their um, customers. So this whole idea of know your customer, you should know how income is being generated, how revenue is being generated. You should know those things about a significant customer. It's when these transactions are outside of the normal course of business that makes it hard to detect. For argument's sake, let's say I run a corner shop and I'm working on the front desk one day and I notice there's some really erratic behavior around people coming in buying things like prepaid cards, right? Um, which we which we probably know happens on a on a, on a daily basis. Like, what should what 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 should I do as the person who's maybe selling those prepaid cards or the owner of the store? How should I go about? blowing the whistle so to speak should i look to kind of investigate this myself how sh- what what steps should i look to record you know who, who who should i refer the matter to so if if i were the uh, shop owner um first thing i would do is look at a trend i would look at my records probably um the week the month the the quarter um semi-annually and then compare it maybe three years out and so Am I noticing any trend? And if I am noticing that a bulk, just a huge bulk of prepaid cards, prepaid debit cards are being purchased um, in a certain month, it may be by a certain customer that's tied to a certain debit account number. I would probably start asking a, um, I'd I'd have a concern. And I might make a call to my local law enforcement to say, you know, I started to notice this trend and here is my here is my documentation of what I'm noticing. And I wanted to pass it over to you because it could be a potential problem. And so I think a lot of this depends on the records that are kept. But because everything is electronic now, it's so easy to track and use the data to help us. Are you seeing anything from the banks around kind of education on kind of scams or, 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 any, or anything like that right now? I do. I know with my bank, um, when I log on, there is a click here to learn about how to protect yourself. But it's more of a pull approach to education than a push approach. And I think um, I appreciate and applaud the effort, but I think there needs to be more of a push approach and more routine. Um, I would love to see more communication from banks about the latest scams, the latest things you need to be careful of. Um, but I don't see a ton of that. Um, but hopefully, hopefully it's changing. Banks, if you're listening, make some changes. Looking at social media, what we're now starting to see is a whole host of um, different kind of uh, social media personalities which are trying to highlight different types of scams right so great example is late last night i couldn't get to sleep i went on tiktok and i found some guy that was trying to uh, who was being scammed by an indian call center and then he was logging into their laptops and trying to delete their files and stuff like that so you know do do, do we think there's any lessons that could be learned from some of these um individuals which are trying to highlight kind of scams in a social kind of environment 
that that we could i guess perhaps learn more from a from a corporate domain right because i think if we go back to whistleblowing and stuff like that you know the the one thing that i guess kind of stuck in my head when when i when i was reading your book is that at school i always got told snitches get stitches right (laughs) so 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 and 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 that's a typical kind of common theme that i guess happened in the uk so like is there any lessons that we could learn from some of these social vigilantes let's call them um uh from 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 a more corporate standpoint i think what we are seeing is the importance of getting a message out and so i think what corporate can learn from that is how to scale a message so if you're trying to alert your clients your customers about a a a scam gone are the days of mailers and marketing that way I think what social media is showing us is the the urgency that can be placed on sharing a message. So it you would be best to have a strategy of sharing valuable information because there is already a built-in network. And I think that's what we're, we're learning. Um, we need to make sure we have the right messengers sharing that information. So you probably don't want my 17-year-old son sharing the latest um, beware of this scam at at Chase Bank. You probably don't want that happening. So you need to be a part of that ecosystem so that you can share the kinds of messages and share and control the narrative that you want to be shared. And I think that's what social media has shown us is the speed of marketing has completely changed. And if you're not there and if you're not getting your message on those platforms, it will probably be detrimental to your um, customers and clients. And I, I guess ultimately, like different people learn in different ways, right? So obviously, like my grandma probably isn't going to log on to YouTube or TikTok to try and understand what a scam is. But yet, you know, if you sent her a letter in the mail, she's probably more like more likely to read it. Whereas I guess my kind of my younger brother would, would, would more likely be surfing TikTok all day rather than actually doing some work. So again, I guess kind of that TikTok methodology would be better. Yeah. I mean, you think about just looking at the different generations that are that exist today. We think about um, millennials, Gen Zers, you know, who they make up. We have to communicate and share information in the way that they consume information. So I think um, it's really important to not discount um, that generation that is the largest generation out there that's going to fuel the way our society works the next five, 10, 15 years to come. So we have to we have to be aware of all of those social channels. You cannot be there. You cannot not be sharing information there, especially important information. So Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to 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 talk with us today. Really, really appreciate kind of the insights, and and I'm also really, really excited about this new crypto um, documentary that you've you, that, that that's coming out. It's called The Highest of Stakes. And um, you'll see me, you'll see Lamont Black. It profiles the Hex coin and the founder of that coin called his name, his name is Richard Hart. It's a pretty wild ride. Um, if you watch it, let me know you've, saw, you've seen it. So reach out. Excellent on that one. So look, thank you again. Really, really appreciate the time.